Rod Anstey is a Jack Kerouac enthusiast and collector based in Ottawa, Ontario. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Like to do an anatomy of you. <laughs> it's becoming less and less attractive as a concept. <laughs> Drag you into the morgue here. Yeah. Really, anatomy of a collector. So, what was it about Kerouac that got you enthusiastic to the point where you wanted to possess, what, everything about him almost? Mm -hmm. Literarily, anyway. Well, back when I was in high school, the summer of 1969, when I had my first little adventures hitchhiking around, I knew the name Kerouac, but I certainly wasn't aware of him very much, and I hadn't read anything by him. Probably, if I was connected, it was through uh, Bob Dylan to the literary scene that came after Kerouac. Where were you hitchhiking? Oh, just around Ontario. Yeah. I was kind of in the back of my mind proving myself to my parents because I knew that the following summer I wanted to go out to the West Coast and down to the East Coast and around the States and stuff. Back Anyways, in the days when everyone wasn't petrified about getting picked up by someone in a car. It was, it was a, I had a fantastic experience. So when I got back from uh, those adventures, some of those early adventures, I wrote something in high school. And my teacher, whose name I still remember, Al McGowan at Nepean High School, wrote on the bottom of it. It's a little dated now, but you might enjoy reading On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Just because of your kind of wonderlust. I guess so, yeah. But I, I think in retrospect, this was 1969, yeah. but the end of October 69, and Kerouac had just passed away. And I think probably Kerouac was in his mind. Because of that, he probably read it in Time magazine or something. And I was. I was at the right age. I was absolutely blown away by it. the sense of freedom and getting out and going places. Just uh, just kind of getting out of town. Yeah, getting out of town and going to see what does what do the mountains look like? What what does Vancouver look like? Uh, what are the prairies? I mean, I, they're in your mind, but until yeah. you're actually out there. This desire to, to physically experience place. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Instead of just reading about it. Or, or watching it. Yeah, and Jack was, that book was specifically about that physical sensation of traveling. But what, what attracted me to the book really wasn't the hero, wasn't Dean, Neil Cassidy, it was Sal, Jack himself, uh, as an observer, making an attempt. I was interested in that writing process as well. I knew right off from early reading that Jack wasn't head over heels in love with Neil. He didn't think that Neil was a flawless character. As such, there were flaws that he that are right there in the book, you know. And he was also self-aware. The, the opening scenes of that where he takes off to uh, head to West Coast to get to Neil, where he, the trip is basically a washout because he's picked the wrong route across America. It, it's basically a derelict road, you know. It's a nice green line across the map, but it doesn't actually have much traffic on it and so on and so on. So he heads north. You know, he's keyed up. I'm on the road now. I'm keyed up. Yeah. So he gets up. He goes up to someplace north of uh, New York, gets bogged down as he starts to go east-west. And eventually, some man and his uh, wife and somebody else pick him up and bring him back to New York. And so what does Kerouac do? He jumps on the bus. All he wants to do is get to Chicago. And so as far as he's concerned, I don't care. All this failure, forget it. I'm going. And he, and he took the bus. So the first segment of this great hitchhiking on the road tour was a disaster. But so it, well, he didn't care how he got there. At that particular point in his life, he didn't care how he got there. Just right. let me be in Chicago. More okay. or however you put it. And it's so nicely self-deprecating, you know, that he, he'd blown it, he'd blown his planning. He had this sort of idealized view of how it was going to be from sitting in his little home in Lowell or wherever he was at that time, his own park in New York, but he got it wrong. And uh, as 
fully able to admit that. Mm -hmm. I, th I found that refreshing. In the book. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I think the critics kind of, those who loved it, latched onto the freedom and the movement and so on. Uh, those who hated it, latched a bit more onto the, uh, the negative side of neo-criminality, the petty theft and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, One reason that I wasn't so stirred up by it was I read it a lot later in life yes. than you did. Yeah. I had this sense that it really was a, a kind of a brain dump. There's some, some beautiful lyrical passages, but there's, there's also a lot of, I don't know, just a lot of stuff in it that, that wasn't that appealing in, in terms of the way it was written for mm -hmm. me anyway. But obviously, as you said, yeah. it got into your hands at the right time, the right time. and it, uh, yeah. it lit some kind of fire. Absolutely. So the next summer, uh, having proved my <laughs> roadworthiness, I guess, uh, at the, I left. It was uh, 1970, so I wasn't, um, I hadn't, I guess I hadn't turned 16. My parents let me go. Wow. And off I went, and, uh, I was, and that was a fantastic experience. It's not like so I was... So all on your own? On my own, because you could get better rides. And so what did you do? Up north, Superior up to that comical meeting place at Wawa where there'd be like 75 <laughs> hitchhikers all heading west at once. And then uh, Winnipeg and straight across, you know, Regina and Lethbridge. And then I went from there to Vancouver. And, uh, so were you reading the book while you were doing this as no, well or not? I'd read it already. You already read it. So with me. You, you did no, carry it? No, or I you didn't, know, didn't Okay. Yeah. Like what was it in the book that you brought with I, you in your mind while yeah, you were out it, there? But I mean, it's just like hitchhiking can sometimes be really good because you're forced periodically to stop moving and stand beside the road and look around. And if you're in the right setting, sometimes it's just magnificent. And you almost don't even want to start hitchhiking again because you, you, then you're whipping by these things. Mm -hmm. I can remember a few absolute golden moments where I'm just, I'm standing by a river in uh, BC, mountains in the distance, and, and it's just, wow, this is fantastic. I'm exploring the world. Yeah, I've now stood here, you know, and other places. I remember driving by Trail for the first time, and Trail was, to me, was the hockey team, the Trail Smoke Eaters. And I had never seen this place. I'd always heard their players. They won the world championship in 54. They had a lot of successful international teams representing yeah. Canada. And right. So that was neat to go to Trail and uh, go through the Rogers Pass because, um, oh, one of the other books I had at that very same time was um, Doug Featherling's book, poetry about hitchhiking, which was uh, called Thumbprints. has a picture of Featherling on the cover with his little bag, his thumb out, and it, it had a, uh, all, all manner of great Canadian poets of that time, 1968-69. And it's full of place references and, and so on. And so going through those places, it just felt fantastic. Everything was connecting. This is my country. These are... Yeah. And so I, I did that round trip. I went into the States uh, to visit a girlfriend of mine. Uh, Great Falls, Montana, had a uh, NORAD base there. That's a beautiful, beautiful country in Montana. And so I got home, and uh, I don't know how long I was home, but then I went, okay, I'm leaving again. <laughs> I'm going to go east. And, uh, so a real wanderlust then. Yeah, I enjoyed it tremendously. And, uh, okay, so, uh, but Kerouac was, what, was he bubbling in the background? Or? Yes, definitely. And during that whole period, I was also trying to find his other books. So in terms of book knowledge and book collecting, I, I wasn't finding them. They weren't necessarily available in shops around town. And somebody said, well, you should be looking in second-hand stores. Uh, have a look in used in second-hand stores. So that's got me into that culture. And then eventually you get, you've discovered that, oh, there's such a thing as a first edition. What the hell's that? And, 
and you have to uh, investigate that. And eventually, of course, that's another whole level of buying and searching, and some Kerouac stuff you couldn't get otherwise, uh, some of the obscure pamphlets and things. So, so that's, okay. that was my introduction to so book you, collecting. You, right. Someone said, okay, I've got to go to the used bookstores. You do. So you, you uh, obviously, you've, you've made some kind of contact with the, the, the seller. Mm -hmm. They pointed you to what they had, and then you asked them to uh, keep their eyes open for sure. stuff. That's right. Why did you do this, though? Because I wanted to read all the Kerouacs. Right, right, so you didn't care about what edition it was to start Initially, with. Initially, no, I didn't know no, anything about that. You just want to read it yeah. all. Yeah. Because you were so taken, because he spoke to you. Yeah, so Dharma bombs and... So that gets me through into the early 70s, let's say. Yeah. And some of the books came out. There was some reissuing that went on in 73, about around that time when Ann Charter's biography came out. Okay. Uh, naturally enough, publishers and you know kind of ride on each other's coattails in that sense. Yeah. So I was able to get, for the first time, you know, Mexico City Blues. And I think Pick was actually published around 71 for the first time. So you got it when it came out. Yeah. As, and, as a, precisely. Right. Down in Toronto. And then... Uh, Eventually, I ended up working in, not in a second-hand bookstore, but in a regular trade store, which was Dan Mazursky's bookstore called Prospero, down in Billingsbridge. And uh, uh, in addition to being a great bookseller and good businessman, he was also a book collector. And, and so I was able to learn a lot. Someone to emulate and... Yeah, absolutely. And also, you, you know, it's, I learned things... Keep your ears open, and you learn things about yeah. about books. And uh, I, was, I remember being, going to his house. I think I only went there on one occasion, but it was he had like a front room. He lived in the Glebe, and he had a front room which was a, a book collection. And, uh, wow! You know. What did he collect? Do you remember? Oh, uh, well, he was into he had a fairly broad range of stuff. Uh, but one, I remember he was into a particular uh, British wartime World War One poet. He had a fantastic collection of his. Right. He also showed me. Um, one time, a collection of William Carlos Williams letters that he had, which was pretty cool. What was neat about them was he had letters from before and after a stroke, and you could see that. Oh, anyway. you could see the difference in the handwriting. Yeah. That's cool. So that was cool. Yeah. Anyway, and Dan was a great uh, influence in, in that regard. And uh, into the 70s, or mid-70s, I'm going to Toronto for one-day trips. Jump in the car at 5 a.m., drive to Toronto, hit as many bookstores as I could jump back in the car and drive home. It was quite, quite crazy, but... Uh, and again, this was now everything that you could find on Kerouac. Mm -hmm. Including, you know, magazine appearances and contributions to other books, you know, and, and I'm getting past the point of... I, I can't necessarily afford to buy some of the stuff I'm showing. Even then, it's, the prices are good. Yeah. And uh, I regret, like every book collector, you regret some yeah. things that got away that... What they mean? You couldn't afford a hundred dollars, you idiot! You know? And then you know, it just it just ramps up from there. You start getting interested in letters and uh, that kind of thing. So it was a great ride, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, eventually, you start making contact, as I said, with other collectors, other scholars, whatever. Uh, and it's fun to talk about Kerouac and develop projects for your own research, contribute to their research. Can you give some examples? Well. Uh, as for my own, I, I like to interview people, people yeah. who were just maybe just off the fringes who didn't make it into Anne Charter's biography. But of course you read the biography with oh, great yeah. interest. Yeah, oh yeah, I read and that in one gulp, you know, <laughs> okay. uh, and learned a lot from it. What do you mean by learned? What'd well, you, I didn't know initially it? too much about Kerouac's uh, French-Canadian background. Like She didn't necessarily explore it in depth, 
Yeah. It made an interesting, uh, if you had read Dr. Sachs at that point, you would, oh, okay, well, that's where the French comes from in Dr. Sachs. So then you would get leads from that book. Then you could say, okay, well, maybe I should try and see if there's an, an ant in Quebec that I can that yeah. I can go and interview? Uh, yeah, I didn't actually interview any relatives. Uh, Kerouac died in 69. Right. So he was gone before I picked up any of his books. When he died, he was in Florida, and he left everything uh, to his mother, who was already an invalid at that point. He was, he was taking care of her, wasn't he, for quite well, a few years? No, not for very long, because then he quickly married... Stella Sampas, a woman from Lowell. I believe she was the oldest child of a fairly large family of sisters and brothers. Right. The youngest of that group of siblings was John Sampas, and he's the guy who eventually became in charge of the estate. But So let's move back then to, okay, you read the book. You'd gotten to a point where you were already collecting first editions and anything you could afford, anything you could lay your hands on. Within the limitations of a, a <laughs> bookstore clerk, you know, whose wife at that point had started medical school, so there wasn't a whole lot of money going around. But you started collecting the books because you wanted to read them. Then you wanted to get first editions, and you wanted to get any letters that you could find. What is it that got you on that track to sort of almost obsession? Um, like why? I guess so, why yeah. did you want to have all this stuff? You worship the guy, or? I'm not, you're just constantly interested in the guy. He's, he's yeah. a, the correct word is he's a seminal writer. And if someone is a seminal writer in your cultural pantheon, yeah. everything is important. Because uh, it isn't he, just the, the highlight bestseller novel on the road. It, it's all important because it all figure, it all ties in. It all it creates the three-dimensional picture of, of the, the man and the time and, and uh, so on. He defined, an obviously, an important era changing the whole of society. Yes, definitely. Okay, so in other words, there's there's a lot to study there. Far greater than me, let's say, would be someone like, uh, I mentioned Dylan early on. Dylan also encountered Kerouac, obviously older, but before he came to New York uh, and befriended Allen Ginsberg, he was shown a book like Mexico City Blues and and has spoken about it and recognized that, wow, this is something different. And I think Dharma Bums had the effect on a lot of people, people wanting to explore Eastern philosophy, religion, whatever you want to call Buddhism, and uh, that affected me, certainly. But I think also that you're right, the obsession is not quite the word I would put on it, but I kind of wanted to be able to hold up my end. I wanted to find myself a niche in that world that I could say, okay, I'm connected to Kerouac, even though I never knew him, even though he was dead before I read him. I'm connected, I'm contributing to this machine that's, that's attempting to establish Kerouac's reputation from nothing, yeah. which is what it was. He died oh, a ridiculous level of poverty. I mean, I don't mean he was starving to death or anything, but for a man who had done the things that he'd done, uh, he, it was a hand-to-mouth existence to a great extent. Like the, the hitchhiker was, who's got nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except he's, he's only 47 years old, and when he passes away, alcohol, basically. There's no, there's no way around that uh, yeah. reality. Yeah. So part of it then is you you want to pay tribute to to -hmm. this person, this man, this author, and you want to acknowledge, communicate to others the importance of him, but also you want the connection, right? You want, I I want a piece of that. There is definitely an ego (laughs) element, as uh, I think you were alluding to with the obsession, is that really I would like to be able to put out something that's becomes part of the whole body of work around Kerouac. And, uh, and, and to do that, you have to, first of all, you've got to make some connections. You've got to f- 
write to critics and biographers and uh, and do your research and put together something that no one else has done. Do yeah. some work in a particular area. My one of my favorite areas was Mexico City Blues. So you know, I wrote to Michael McClure and uh, the poet and uh, John Clellan Holmes and you know solicited everybody's comments about how he worked and this kind of thing. Much later on, I was able to see some summaries of the manuscript and what it looked like and how it was structured and corrections that were made and yeah like yeah. in other days I was interviewing people that n- knew him like I, mean, I mentioned Cliff Anderson with Satori in Paris who knew him in later years I also interviewed a gentleman from Montreal Graham Cornway sometimes known as Graham McKean uh, who knew Kerouac in New York uh, their, their connection was that Graham was could speak wild Quebec French he, he uh, had a very different way of speaking French. There's a, a fantastic tape of Kerouac uh, on television in Montreal in 1967 on a program called Le Celle de la Semaine. He's been brought up there to talk, and he's in front of a, an intellectual audience in Montreal in 1967, and he's speaking French, but to them he, he sounds boorish. He sounds... A un- country un- French. Un- yeah, uneducated. Yeah. He sort of said, well, why are they laughing at me? <laughs> you know? And it's because of his choice of phrase. Plus, I think that in there was a, a time in Quebec cultural history when they wanted to disavow yeah. that part of... It's almost like the Jean, Jean Chrétien, uh, That's right. the, you know, the embarrassment French over embarrassment. that. But he, he does just fine in French, he's fully understood. And of course he goes to France in 1965 and bumbles around the country trying to uh, research his roots, but he was absolutely 100% barking up the wrong tree, and nothing could have come of it anyways, but it was a typical Kerouac uh, debacle, like that initial hitchhiking tour, you know? quite frankly and openly discussed in the book. He's a very biographical writer. So he was a very handsome man, right? Yes. Uh, in his youth, he was knockout gorgeous, you know. Towards the end of his life, he was, like everybody, I guess, he's a roughed-up kind of guy. He'd been a football player and an athlete and gone to prep school in New York and on to Columbia on a football scholarship, but that didn't uh, pan out. But uh, that got him out of Lowell and into the intellectual circles in New York City, so it was fantastic. Uh, yeah. Uh, did, he get, did he graduate or not? No. Finished the prep school about time, no problem. as a horse man, prep school. And then Columbia. But the war comes in there, sadly, uh, as well, intervenes. Uh, I'm not sure when he went up, up in 39, I think he first started going to horse man, of course, within two years. Although our war began in 39. Yeah. Yeah. This didn't begin until after Pearl Harbor. And then he, he tried the Navy, I think, but wasn't for him, and uh, he ended up in the Merchant Marine. Did yeah. his duty there. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I wanted to be—I wanted to be able to contribute. Yeah. And so I wanted to find my own niches, do my own research, and I connect to people, and that they would welcome my letters and they would be helpful. And then you so, would produce. Now, so what did you produce? Uh, at that time, there was this number of wonderful little publications that the fans were putting out, like newsletters. Yeah. Yeah. There's one called the Kerouac Connection, which was put up by a good pal of mine named David Moore in England. He was a great guy, and so there was no pressure. It wasn't like it was a we were into a serious academic thing yeah. going on here. And what you have to understand is that that was doable precisely because Kerouac left a huge volume of stuff when he died. He saved everything that he did, pretty much. Uh, well, his drafts and drafts and right. uh, unpublished stuff. You know, some of it and letters and letters and letters and childhood games and everything was saved. I, th- I think there was a problem in 19... 19- when Anne's book came out, Anne Charter's book came out, there were some mistakes in there. They were To the family, they were quite offensive. To Jack's widow, they were quite offensive. And his mother, who was still alive at that time, 
one of them in particular was uh, in her in her first printing and uh, stated that Jack's sister Carolyn had committed suicide and that wasn't the case. That was corrected in the second printing. But damage had been done. It was like their first Stella's and, and Jack's mother's first exposure to the public scene, right? Yeah. And it was a catastrophe. Oh, and I think Stella probably at that point said Never again. I'm, uh, I'm not doing this anymore, except in a very limited ways, you know, through friends or whatever. But no, no sense of the estate being open, and they still all had it. And thank God it all survived. But nothing was put into libraries or whatever. And so uh, it wasn't until nine, I think she passed away, Stella, in 1990 or so, and then her will comes into force, and her will distributed all of Jack's copyrights to her in little groups, you know, to brother number one, brother number two. You get the copyright yeah, to this book. This, this book, this book, this book. Well, that's the copyright, but the actual collection the itself and all of that. And the copyright. And then the rest of it, which isn't covered by those two things, as you say, all the physical stuff like the letters and all this, that was to be shared by all of them equally. Okay, the value of that. Uh, so in other words, it's one of these things where each different family member can hopefully make some money off this mm -hmm. by selling it piecemeal right. as opposed to keeping it all together for Harvard or exactly. Yale to yeah. acquire as, as a block. Exactly. There, there, there is that potential for that to happen. Now, it didn't happen to a great extent, but uh, on the road, for example, the manuscript sold, I forget the gentleman's name, but he owns the Cleveland Browns. He bought that scroll manuscript, that fantastic long uh, unroll. And he still got it? Uh, it it's, travels around. I mean, he... To be fair, he's, he's been great. He, oh, he, he exhibits it. Exhibits place, it, simply. yeah. It's been around. Uh, nice. And still, that's the case then? Yeah, as far as I know, it's still going from one place to another. It's okay. been in England and across the States, New York, Los Angeles. Sure. Just like Kerouac himself. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, I bet you, in fact, I'm confident that the $3 million or whatever was paid for that manuscript represents more money than Kerouac made in his entire life. Yeah. I find that kind of upsetting, to be honest. One of his uh, relatives would have done absolutely nothing and made way more than he yeah. would have made yeah. for all the in effort. In theory, the, the, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. There was, and then the controversy, and I mentioned this before, there was, there was a controversy with the estate. Okay, so the estate's open now. Yeah. Suddenly everybody's starting to get a sense of what's there, what's been saved, what you might be able to get access to, and so on. And within foreseeable future, it's going to be in uh, New York Public Library, which is where most of it ended up eventually. The academics... Suddenly, oh my goodness, what's going to happen here, you know? And so everybody's kind of swarming. Events start happening. This is once the will has sort of been Yeah, once executed. once the Sampas family now has a, someone in charge of the estate who's a publicly available figure who, who's working on projects, who's allowing certain things to be published, and so on and so on. Probably the best, I think the best thing that's come out, and it's not a completed job yet, are the two volumes of letters that came out, because that was the, a real good glimpse of his life, but also leads into other things, you know, the things you could follow up on. Like what? Well, the, the early friends, friends whose names had never been mentioned. Ah, I see, before. okay. So right. again, a whole yet, bunch of leads. Here, yeah, you know, there's a letter from him or to him by Kerouac, you know, etc. So what you're doing is then you're taking that information and you're going out and, and adding to the the biography in a way. Yeah, that's what you're, I mean. you're kind of filling out the, the understanding or the... Most legend of the, or whatever. Yeah, most of the things I did predated that development. In 91, I th and I hope I have the dates right here, either 91 or 92, we were having a family vacation in Maine, and I went down to Lowell, met the bookseller that you saw in that picture, to Stephen Street in Lowell, and 
for about six months prior to that, I've, I've been hearing about all this stuff happening. In the, and so going to this amazing, huge New England house where the Stampus family had lived, all these siblings. And Jack had known one of their brothers very well, Sebastian. And uh, he knew John and, and, uh, and, of course, he had been married to Stella. So, you know, it was a house that he knew. But yeah. in the house... He'd stayed there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, at least when he was in high school and so on, you know, his family was in Lowell, and uh, these were people what, that he knew. What about his house? Is it around still? Or? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, there's a couple of places, uh, three or four places in Lowell that you could go to now, I think, still. The place he was born was still there yeah. last time I was there. And luckily, I had this opportunity, and I, we go in, and John's there, and the archive is there. I can't say it was 100% there, but as you go up the stairs in this house, lined up along under the stairs, as the stair goes up, there are like five or six filing cabinets. And that's Jack's archive. That's, that's all the things, his manuscripts, his letters, his, all kinds of goofy stuff that got saved. And they had brought it all together once this estate thing happened. I suppose, first of all, for inventory purposes, and then to start making some decisions, you know, what should we do with some of this stuff? And I was some of the things which I uh, have upstairs are things which came out of that time because they did sell some things off. They didn't sell on the road off or anything major, but uh, they sold some things off. I, I was thrilled to get them. So what did you pick, and how did you make your mind up about what to pick? <laughs> I picked letters. Uh, that was just good fortune. You happened to I walk happen in to, there. I know. I happened to know the... Bookseller who was working with the estate I see. at that time. Right. And I, I came down at that point and I bought, you know, early letters to some friends, to friends, and uh, I bought one piece which I discovered later was actually a section from the, the later novel called Visions of Cody. It was a letter written to, I believe it was to John Clown Holmes, but it's been a while since I looked at it, but he wrote it out as a letter and then he said, oh, I like that. And he put it on the manuscript pile. And then later on, after he'd done the finished typescript of the manuscript, he had this letter. And he go, no point in sending it to Holmes now. So he put it in the file. And so it stayed with Kerouac. And I bought that, and that's kind of cool because it represents the first run-through of a particular event where he's describing, he's basically apologizing for a crazy scene that he got involved with with Neil. Kerouac has marked it with a pencil. He also started here and then narrowed down to here. That's going to go into his manuscript. And I've also bought some books, magazines like um, Evergreen Review, Jack's own copies of Evergreen Review, uh, Jack's own copies of Tish, which is, of course, a Canadian poetry journal. Uh, they mailed, <laughs> I, I found this out later, but basically they, it wasn't that he subscribed to it, but they mailed it to him because uh, they, they wanted him to read it. You know, they right. were, So there's one copy down there that has like four addresses on it. That's how I moved around. And they keep forwarding it around to him. So it has Kerouac's addresses on it from uh, from that period. But I've given a couple of those away. I gave one to George Bowering, and I gave one to um, Bob Hogue, a local poet and professor, now retired from Carleton, because they're in it. Right. So here's proof that Jack, you were talking about proof. Yeah. There's proof that Kerouac held this in his hand, and it had your writing in it. Right. It's pretty cool. So you, you were down there. Where are you in this stage of collecting at that point? You'd got. Well, I'm right at the height of acquiring stuff at that point. Uh, okay, so you've got a bit more money in your pocket? I kind of sensed that it was going to close pretty quick. We didn't have a lot of money, but I, I exhausted it all <laughs> to buy a few things. You already at that point had all the first editions? and 
I suppose I probably did, yeah. yeah. Although a few things came in later. And uh, that was great. That was fine. But that was also the, the germ, the beginning of what for me turned into a... It changed the scene altogether. Because once there was money to be made, once there was careers to be made, interpreting manuscripts and... Academic scholarly, Yeah. Okay. And then everything changed because everybody was competing with everybody else to, for that lofty position, you know, uh, to be... Uh, to be the authority? Yeah, to be the authority, I guess, or to keep, keep uh, to be close with John, who was totally in control. In uh, control of the be. original materials. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He would provide access or, or not. Or not. I see. And that led to a lot of difficulties, but basically it came down to you going to be on one side or the other. Which so, means what? Well, it means that uh, uh, what basically happened was that Kerouac's daughter, Jan Kerouac, had learned back in the 80s that, that uh, she wasn't getting her legal share of, of the revenue from the Kerouac estate. Now, I don't think there was anything malevolent about that. It's just that in 82, when she attended Boulder, and uh, this is a daughter that was Kerouac's uh, uh, from his first, I read about this, his second marriage, and uh, uh, had been legally recognized in court, and he was paying sort of a minimum child support payment, so on and so on, Jan Kerouac. When she went to Boulder in 82, she met, I believe, one of the Steinbeck children, and they explained to her that she should be getting half the royalties. Anytime copyright is renewed, surviving children are entitled to half the royalties. She was a surviving child. Is she the only surviving child? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's been uh, legally recognized, yeah. say. Yeah. And uh, so then it was a question of getting the estate to cooperate. And at this time, we're still talking about Stella. Jack's mom has passed away. Stella has inherited material. Stella, again, is the... Jack's final wife. His right. wife. Okay. Actually, I think that process went fairly smoothly. I think that they realized that once it was sort of pointed out to them that this is the law... Yeah. Oh, okay. So they went back and they any renewals and became... She, she acquired 50% of the... Uh, Jan started to get her revenue and the uh, each year another thing would come up for renewal right as time passed. And uh, she wasn't in greatest health, and also she became aware that there was a problem with Jack's mother's will. So Jack leaves everything to his mother and made it explicitly clear that he did not want it to go to his wife's or his wife's family. But in the time from his death in 69 until her death in 73, my mare, Gabrielle Kerouac, Jack's mother, changed her will and left everything to Stella. Against the will of Jack. In theory, yeah, against yeah. the will of Jack, although he's in the grave. So this yeah. And, and I think it was a recognition, a totally fair one, uh, that this woman, her daughter-in-law, had taken care of her for a long period of being an invalid. Yeah. During that period, I mean. Yeah. So it wasn't a particularly shocking result no. or anything like that. Uh, except Humane. That, yeah, essentially. And plus Stella had devoted her life to this, and that was all she had, you know. But after all the smoke had cleared, dust had settled, Mamere's will was probably not signed by her. And I think that was ruled in the last 10 years or so, that in fact it was person or persons unknown had, had uh, engineered this document. No, there was no criminal repercussions. Uh, there was no repercussions at all. By this point, Jen had passed away. But there was a lot of wrangling over that when it, when it first kind of broke. 
But hey, lots but of... But that was the fight. The fight lots was, of potential for lawyers to make a lot of money. Oh yeah, here. and they did during those years, I'm sure. And so that was the fight. That was the core of it, which was Jan Kerouac on the one hand and the Sampson family on the other uh, at loggerheads. And there were, But each side had its spokesman and its champion and yeah. a lot of junk went back and forth. And for someone like myself, who had been friends with everybody, you know, you put a foot wrong and you're, you're slaughtered and... Uh, or you're threatened, or you're, you know, or you, or you're suddenly in legal jeopardy or something. But, but why? Let me put it specifically. If I said something about Ann Charters and my conversation with Ann Charters, which put her in a bad light as far as the estate was concerned, then her relationship with John Sampas would be affected negatively. So she couldn't, even though we'd had very frank conversations about John and his handling of the estate and her role within various projects at the estate and so on I could not mention them to anybody else because if they if that came out if it got into the, that information got into the wrong hands she'd be embarrassed and John would look at her askance and say so in other well, words that's it you're not doing with anything with the estate anymore because if so if any of your frank conversations sort of became public mm-hmm. with this biographer and it and it in any way sort of put one side in a bad light mm-hmm. then you were treading on if, if you were smart then you wouldn't have access because that's what they that's had that's what it was right? all about they had the access. leverage yeah. they had the leverage yeah okay. or future projects or future right. possibilities that you wanted to explore okay. and so and I didn't know anything about this crap I didn't know anything about you know <laughs> academic territoriality and all this kind of stuff I was just out there because I, I enjoyed corresponding with everybody in one particular incident I, I got severely reprimanded for talking about something out of turn and I didn't know that I had talked out of turn and I didn't know that what that even meant in the context of the estate. So talking time. out of turn means you you would have published something in the newsletter or? Just had a conversation about something with the wrong person. That's on it? On the other side of the estate. Yeah. Worse. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So here's so, what happened. I can give yeah. you a concrete example. When the first volume of Jack Kerouac's Selected Letters edited by Ann Jones, came out if you have a proof copy of it, I get a really nice acknowledgement for having been a you know, generous support for, uh, for the project. And that was kind of cool. Except at the time, I was being dropped, as it were, by Ann Charters. So when the book came out, my little paragraph, my name was shunted down into the all rents, and my little paragraph was assigned to somebody else. Same paragraph. More or less the same phrase, but phrasing. But uh, And I thought, yeah, just the wrong time, and uh, that's that's how it works. That's how it worked in those days. And uh, for you, this was some, you know, to obviously acknowledgement of what you'd been doing mm-hmm. in a very public way, and it's being pulled away because of this mess that had developed at the estate. So, how did that affect your whole wish to contribute to the legend and right. be part of that phase? There's a period where you were. Where I was, I felt very privileged because I was getting a lot of information from the inside that wasn't the same public information at that point, right. and it was very cool. And I was hearing about what they were finding in the estate, and they did an inventory, uh, which I've seen a few pages of, specifically the pages that relate to Mexico City Blues. This is John. Yeah, he, yeah. he hired somebody to do a, yeah. uh, an inventory. So a guy from Lowell. I mean, it was fant- it was well done. It was. Uh, for, for a first pass through this material. Yeah. It was quite remarkably well done. and uh, so In effect, kind of a bibliography. Yeah, it, yeah, of unpublished material, 
I just, I just, you got me thinking back to when I was sitting in that that dining room in Lowell, you know, and the things that I had that I held in my hand uh, Jack's mother's copy of uh, Visions of Gerard, which Gerard is, of course, Jack's older brother, and he is inscribing it to her, you know, and she leave apropos de Gerard, and he tells her what pages to read or something, and, and then in the back there, there was pressed a lily with the date, and At that time, I was the only guy in that room. There were two, three of us who knew that that lily was from Jack's sister's funeral because of the date. And my mother had pressed a flower from her daughter's funeral into the back of the book. I don't know where that went, but um, anyway, it's just so touching, you know. Like it's, again, we we're talking about something being right at the center of uh, the, the whole scene. That was a, a very private book, a very private moment, and uh, to be able to hold that was fantastic. Well, the fact that you had the knowledge, you knew what it yeah, meant. what it had to mean, you know, yeah. the, and why she put it in there, because, of course, that Visions of Gerard is the, perhaps the most Lowell-centric book. It's about Jack's older brother and his death in Lowell as, as a 10-year-old when he dies. You know? and, yeah. Uh, so it's, 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 uh, it would have been a book that would have been terribly evocative uh, yeah. uh, of that time. Anyway, uh, I don't know how I got sidetracked to that, but just the, yeah. that moment of... Uh, Remembering that moment, and I was astounded that I, this had happened. It was like a dream, you know. Yeah. That you, you knew that stuff had to be out there. We lived through a long period of nothing coming out except bootleg publications, which I did a bibliography of. But boy, this moment has changed. You know, the sun is rising. It's a new day, and uh, this is stuff is amazing. What's here? Yeah. We had no idea what was there. Um, I, and I mentioned Ann Charters uh, when we were talking about the bibliography. I, her biography, again, a first pass through the material is quite, you know, in that sense, it's an important, important pioneering yeah. book, but full of mistakes. But she had no access. She didn't have yeah. any access to So what was the it, she conjecture, a lot of it? Uh, no, she, she went around and interviewed people, uh, mostly the beat time, uh, naturally, because those, that was, uh, her and Sam were connected in a lot of ways to some of those characters themselves. So uh, that was naturally where she went to understand, to gain her understanding of Caroline. And less concentration on the childhood, and, uh, and she she made some big mistakes in that area too. She got the most important childhood friend from the Sampas family was Sebastian, Sebastian Sampas, who died in the Second World War. And she got his name wrong. So that's in the first edition and changed in the. In the... Uh, I don't know if that guy ever got corrected. Okay. It's probably the same in yours. She calls him Alex. I begin to draw away because I, I can't. I don't have energy for this anymore. No. Um, so it takes what it takes the shine off uh, for sure the the thrill of it yeah yeah it's it's just despite every, you're having that that moment with the flower mm-hmm. that was lovely that was lovely. that was 1992 I and went then, to a conference in at NYU and uh, that's I gave a talk down there on Mexico City Blues right a huge uh, conference in honor of the 50th meeting year of the meeting of the the main core of the Beats when. Burroughs and Kerouac and Ginsburg got together in, in New York in 1944, and this was 94. And uh, amazing that 50 years had passed, but so everybody was there. All the guys who were still alive were there. It was like the second version of the 82 Boulder Conference. And uh, everybody's there, everybody's older, but it was great. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah. But it was, things had just begun to blow with the estate. And what's going on here? Are they selling off? piecemeal, are they selling all this stuff off, 
why is the archive staying together? Uh, what's the legality of the wills and all this stuff? And it's just starting to go crazy. And uh, it was too bad that it happened. All this stuff happened simultaneously. And uh, the biographer of Kerouac, Gerald Nicosia, was Jan's ally uh, in that. And uh, he was, I guess all I could say, Jerry was uh, very determined and hardworking scholar, did uh, much more digging to put together his biography than uh, Anne had done. But uh, in the end, he, he had his own flaws in terms of how you write a biography, I think. And uh, so his book is also questionable. Why is that? He had a couple of odd quirks. One was he tended, if you read it carefully, slowly, you realize he's putting words in people's mouths, telling you how they thought about something. When he couldn't he really couldn't have, possibly known have known it. Yeah. Or if you try and follow the footnote, if you try and... Uh, his footnotes are completely... They're at the end of each chapter, like if you go to the back of the book, but chapter 7, let's say, and there'll be a, a list of notes, but they don't relate specifically to a, a phrase or a qu- quotation or whatever. There's no, there's no direct linking of... So if he, he said Jack felt sad and went to bed, okay, well, you, want, you have to tell me somewhere where you got that information. And that isn't what happens. So a lot of people, I think Ferlinghetti was really right off the mark. He said uh, about psychologizing or something as soon as he read it. I have um, the original dust jacket for the first edition. There are people who gave blurbs for the book, but they, but they hadn't read the book at that point. And then when they read the book, they, their blurbs are pulled off. You know, they say, Get, you know, I'm not doing that or whatever. You know? right. So a lot of people uh, were, when they finally got down to reading it, said, Oh, we got problems here. But yeah. anyway, so uh, Jerry was the, the ally of Jan. Uh, many people would say he was the force, and Jan was the, the token mm-hmm. uh, family symbol, you know. And she was ill, and it was a tough time for her. It might have worked out, except Jerry was a very confrontational guy, and uh, there was never going to be a compromise between him and the estate. Uh, if she'd had another spokesman, perhaps working on her behalf, and he also, I think he also alienated other people who might have been allies but had dealt with him and, and thought, oh, I yeah. just don't want to do that anymore. I remember specifically Alan Ginsberg uh, talking very briefly to him in, in, at that conference in New York and things were just breaking and, and Jerry was saying to me, well, tell him, tell him what's going on. And we should I go aside and, and it was clear that Alan, he wanted to know in, in some ways, but he just didn't want to get involved. So, so what happened with the archive then? Okay, well, the, it, it took quite a long time but by far the vast majority of the archive is now in the Berg collection at the New York Public Library. And uh, it ended up being signed over by the Saps State at different times. Anything that wasn't already out, and so there were other places where Kerouac things were, like in Northport, New York, there's a, they have the first town in the city, they have the TypeScript. You know, because Kerouac lived in Northport and he gave them that. So they have that holding. Is it specific to the city, the area, or not? T- or just the fact that he wrote it there? Yeah, uh, just that he was living there, I think. I see, okay. he, uh, Somebody might, might have encouraged him to do that, I guess. So you've got to, you were at a pinnacle then. You had this great collection of all the first editions, some interesting, important correspondence, a lot of the magazines that he'd appeared oh, yeah. in. You had, what, you were, you were a completionist then. Yeah, but to, he tried to, to be. A lot of translations, foreign language editions, and... That just exploded when the estate <laughs> opened up. There was a certain amount of simmering activity, even in Kerouac's life. But then, about 1920, 
1990. I, I suppose it corresponds to the uh, breakup of the Soviet Union. They yeah. just went mad, and so there'd be Kerouac on the road in Serbia and and all over the all over the world. And and for a time, I was collecting all that stuff. It's yeah. a fantastic site. If you go online, uh, Dave Moore, the, one of my friends during these years, if you just sort of Google on the road covers, you can see how many covers uh, of of translations of. On the road. So you went, after, you went after as many of those as yeah, you could. Yeah, I had, I had lots of those. Okay, so you, but you were getting a bit disenchanted. For sure, yeah. We want the ana- your anatomy here. Mm-hmm. You got this flame, this fire. You started to acquire as much as you could. You corresponded. You actually met with. You delivered papers. Mm-hmm. You really got into it wholeheartedly. When you're at a certain point, when you've got, you had a yeah. great collection... Like one of the world's great collections, would you suggest? I don't know if it if it would go that far, but uh, no, I had, I had a good, really good collection. Uh, okay, uh, there's no doubt about it. And, and how did you feel about that? It, was, it felt great. It was uh, it was part of my identity at that time. And how would that manifest itself? Well, you know what, people would contact you. It was a you. secret identity. <laughs> what? It was a secret identity yeah. in many ways because you know, I mean, I was living in Hunt Club uh, in Ottawa. In Ottawa, you know, <laughs> uh, just it would just occasionally something would. It mentioned, or uh, when the Quebec conference took place in '87, I, there was a couple of interviews at that time. Uh, at the, it, funny because this all corresponds with uh, having young kids and being home with them. So all of a sudden, <laughs> people notice the, they see the Kerouac thing, but they also what do you mean he's home with his kids. What's that mean? You know? Right. So that was fairly early on too. But uh, it, it was a matter of principle and pride with me that I held up my end, which is almost impossible to do because I'm in Ottawa. Yeah. I don't live in New York City. So the way you hold up your end is you. Correspond with a lot of people. You do what you can for them. But define hold up your end. Meaning that you're not just writing to somebody uh, and saying, oh, can you send me this? Or I'd like to buy that from you or whatever. It isn't like that. It's Here's some information. Oh, I just saw this in Italian. Did you know that that was out in Italian? Or And this is happening. Or that conference is going to be taking place in and here's the guy you should write to, or whatever, you know. You were helping others, yeah. or you were, as you say, contributing but, but to the... You're right that it, it still had an ego component, because I wanted to be in You wanted to be scene. a go-to guy. Yeah, I wanted to be able to uh, help people out, you know. Uh, I suppose the first big thing I did was to take the collection to Quebec City, and there was a, a great display there that year at the conference, at the museum, right on the Plains of Abraham, and one whole room was devoted to Carroy. So my books were part of that, along with a bunch of uh, really nice pictures, photographs, Robert Frank photographs, and with uh, different people that they'd gotten together. And so he walked in, and it was like a tour of a little mini biography of Carolyn. And so there was a catalog of, or some such mm-hmm. with your name in it? and Yeah, and my you know, little signs. I still have some of these things. Little signs of your, yeah. your collection? Yeah. Okay. I had some. Tra- I had a few translations, and it, it wasn't massive at that time, no. just because I weren't as many as there are now but I got as many as I could and so just to give that sense of how international yeah. the writer is so that that made you feel good yeah, I felt terrific yeah that was a great That's experience an authority you were an authority yeah people wanted my help they, they yeah. came to me and asked me for help with these books and that was great and if it wasn't that it was connected to Kerouac like if I wasn't enjoying Kerouac or didn't still enjoy him I don't think I would have continued and I think that's what happened in the end was I, I got involved in a scene which was interfering with my enjoyment of Kerouac. I had already gone as far as I felt I needed to go. I'd already established, as far as I could, for somebody who was, hadn't even read him when he died, I'd, I'd established myself as far as I could. And uh, I didn't need any more. 
and when this thing it, it was just too much energy and too much hostility and too much negativity and you know to some extent I guess suppose we all move on right yeah. Jack says other phases of our lives when he breaks the relationship with Neil at the end of On the Road you know move on to other phases of our lives it wasn't that I didn't like Neil or I forget how he phrases it but it's you know yeah. but we each had to move on to the next phase and uh, that's really what happened so we're going to move on to our next phase then and I'm speaking with uh, Rod Anstey who's um, the epitome of a collector <laughs> he lives and has lived a fascinating collecting life and we're about how far through are we now there's the withdrawal phase where you kind of you have to <laughs> stop corresponding with people and, and that's kind of painful but there's an expression which you, it's almost a cliche the notion that something turns to ashes in your mouth that's what I felt kind of you just kind of come to a halt for a second like what this is not Why tasting I, good anymore yeah this isn't tasting good anymore and it, it doesn't have the qualities it had five years ago let's say so then I have to stop the routine acquisition let's let's we talked about foreign editions yeah so I, I you know things keep coming out and I think I just don't want to do this anymore I can't, yeah. I can't do it I'm not interested anymore so at that point, did you catalog your collection? I'm trying to think if I ever wrote a, a complete list. But yes, basically I did. And the reason, I don't know, it wasn't detailed like a bibliography. Uh, there's a gentleman out in um, California. His last name is Davis. I might remember his first name, but he actually is doing a fantastic bibliography project. And he's, he was a collector. Right now. I believe he's still working on it. I saw some preliminary pages stack of pages that thick and uh, he was trying to do an absolutely complete bibliography the existing bibliography was put out in like 66 or so and then it was revised and the second uh, version was put out so you did that with your collection or so yeah, something so, like and that and I actually that's when I sort of did what's the word deacquisition uh, some of my stuff because I, he needed help with things he was happy to pay a reasonable price for them yeah. and I was happy to send them to him because I knew they were going to this fantastic project and so for example Canadian editions he wouldn't have known anything about Canadian editions necessarily and so I could help him with that that was when I was sort of fully engaged with the notion that I want, there's tons of stuff I want to keep but there's also a bunch of stuff I don't need to keep to survive and that was a very liberating kind of feeling in a way because it it, tur it turned out you could mail away something that had been sitting on your shelf for a long long time and it and didn't hurt it didn't hurt you didn't you got up the next morning and continued yeah. on did you see a, an appreciable increase in the value of the material, or was I wouldn't say it was appreciable, but yeah, there was a, an increase. A bit in value. of value. I hung on to the most valuable things. Yeah, okay, uh, that's that's the truth. It's Those that funny thing where first editions and first printings are important, but actually the seventeenth printing might be the rarest. You know, and if yeah. you're doing a bibliography like this guy was doing, and I mean a serious, yeah. flat out bibliography where he's measuring page widths and. That, that's kind of stuff, you know. So I can help him with, with that because I have I have the seventeenth printing. Don't yeah. ask me why, but I have it. That kind of goofiness, or the the one with the different price on the cover, or, or some kind of printing crazy error. Or, yeah, yeah. I was able to send stuff to him. Yeah, uh, and that kind of put a dent in the collection. I sold off some things um, to the booksellers here in town. And you're happy with what you got for them? Yeah, yeah, perfectly yeah. happy. I I tried to save the ones that I. That had a story. That's and yeah. that's why everything I have now. Although, yeah, I have a first edition of On the Road, but what I really like is the battered one with a story that goes with it. You know, yeah. that's related somehow to Kerouac and 
there's many, many signatures. I, I like my Dharma, my copy of Dharma Bumps First Edition has about seven or eight character signatures in it from people who are fictional characters, as it were, in the book, the real life person. And uh, I just love getting stuff like that. It's totally Association. bizarre. Yeah. 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 So it starts out with Kerouac and then John Montgomery and Gary Snyder, the three that go up the Matterhorn in, in uh, Dharma Bums and real life people, you know, and their signatures, and then a few of the others that were around and about them. Can you verbalize that, love? Like, you got them to sign, You were you there when they signed it? Uh, and I tried to be in most cases, yeah. in some okay. cases I couldn't, like uh, John Montgomery, I don't he's a character, if anybody was in doing Kerouac, uh, when I was, they knew John Montgomery, he was the ultimate and uh, an absolute center of correspondence, like he just had an, an amazing network of friends. And who was he? Well, he was uh, a friend of Kerouac. I see. And had a character in Dharma Bombs and also uh, Desolation Angels, a, a minor character there, but mentioned. And someone that Kerouac uh, corresponded with himself. So he was a known primary guy. And uh, But he was a great eccentric. So as you say, it's it's a way for you to participate. It's, mm-hmm. it's a way for you to yeah. be part of the group. Yeah. When I first met him, which was in Quebec City, but that's after we've been corresponding for some time, and you meet him physically face to face and once he registers who you are it's like he's you're in the middle of a conversation that you didn't even know it started he's going he's talking to you yeah and, well you, you you know things that most people don't know so maybe that's part of it as well right yeah I you're, think that's probably true of any collector it's, uh, you don't even have to know the person to you've got an incredible amount of stuff to talk about together mm-hmm. yeah there was something, he was a great guy and, and he was interested in foreign language editions as well and I got some things from him. I mentioned the Northport copy. Of, he got that. That was on put on microfilm, and he got a print made from that, from the microfilm. And it's a, it's really nice. There are copies around, but they're all second, third generation. Uh, Xerox, is, this is a really clear image of the TypeScript from beginning to end. And uh, when John passed away, uh, that was the one thing I picked up from the uh, his, his estate. Mm-hmm. I still have all my letters from John. So the collecting is as much about the friendships around it in my case, yeah. And so you, it's a thrill you, to meet some of these people that I had. Uh, yeah, I, I remember the first day I saw in Charters uh, in Quebec City, and she's walking down the street, and and she says she smiles and says hello. She doesn't know who I am. That night we got together. The same night I met uh, John Montgomery. We had a, a great chat, and uh, she was interested because then I was home with the kids, and she was all interested in that. And then she introduced me to Alan Ginsberg that night too, because I had my copy of Dharma Bombs. I said, Anne, you got it got to help me get a signature <laughs> and uh, so she Alan come here, come here. And, he, and she explained what it was she showed him the book and all these other signatures that were in it and so Alan took it away and, and I got it back later with a little six line poem written into uh, because because I'd been introduced by Ann Charters yeah you got that's that. good you know? so emotionally you've divested yourself yeah, from yeah. it you still got a good chunk of it yeah. um, what do you what do you want to do with that oh uh, well, you know, that's not my problem. That's Cameron's problem. My son's Your problem. son. Uh, down the line. So you're to. not, you're never going to... I couldn't sell it because... Or, or uh, donate it somewhere. You're not going to do that. Well, the, the letters are a little different in Kettle of Fish, but mostly the things that I have that are close to my heart don't necessarily have research value. They have that weird uh, tactile... The, yeah. this, this was held by somebody. This was owned by somebody, but it's not so, something that you need to have on deposit at a research library because it doesn't... It's more significant to you. Yeah. Like one thing I have upstairs in, in a binder is a whole bunch of clippings from when On the Road was published, reviews. 
right. on the road. They were Neil and Carolyn's clippings of the, about their friend's book right. in 1957. And, you know, somebody's written dates on them and so on. I don't know whether it was Carolyn or Neil, but who knows. But they don't have value. You can get those clippings yeah. anywhere. You know, you can, you can look them up online now in, in, in five seconds. But the, uh, the fact that they were there at the time that little piece of newspaper it was there right at the heart of the story and it was theirs yeah I like that kind of thing because it's the only it's slightly different than just collecting a first edition money can buy a first edition but the rest came from being friends with people and corresponding with people and Carolyn came to Ottawa a couple of times and uh, uh, stayed with us over in Hunt Club and I took her to different, a couple of different events um, the ones down in Toronto when her own book was published it's an important book but she has her own perspective. And then, if I can just add, along comes, during that period of time, other interests, little branches that go along. And I, I mentioned Gilbert Sorrentino. I also collected one of my earliest Kerouac buddies was uh, Jim Christie, an American-born writer who came to Canada during the Vietnam era, stayed in Canada. He's got a huge body of work now. Collected him down through the years. Uh, Barry Gifford, who wrote one of the early biographies of have a lot of Barry Gifford. But you know, you you got to know these people. Uh, yes. To, so it that started at Kerouac, but it, it bloomed out from that. I wasn't particularly again, wasn't particularly interested in collecting Ginsburg. There was all kinds Everyone of people collecting does. Ginsburg. Yeah. Partly you want to break new ground as well, then, or yeah, I've or, always wanted to be work, sort of squirreling away to some extent on my own, on yeah. my own thing. So that's how I end up doing completely different stuff, you know, like Ottawa photography. So you've been following your curiosity in a way, for sure, and your passion. So, when we talk about collecting, sure, you're going to understand a lot about the, the subject matter and the, and the people involved. But what do you learn about yourself? Mm. Yeah, that's a very interesting. Uh, I, I think when we first spoke, I said that I didn't really know what Freud said about uh, collecting. You know, why do we do it? What are we shoring up all this stuff against? You know, why do we do that? And again, Kerouac reached a point where it turned to ashes in his mouth too. But whilst you're doing it, it's it's fun to be part of a community and to to feel you're a member, an active member of the of that community. I couldn't possibly have just collected, and I know people do. Uh, you know, when they pass away and the, they discover the greatest Robert Service collection in, in the Western world, you know, in in some person's library, you know, that they. No one was particularly aware of this guy, but he was just working away steadily. If it doesn't connect somehow, if it doesn't take me out of myself to other places and other people, I got pleasure out of holding the book, but it had to mean something more than that for me. But what about you, though? What does it tell you about you? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I don't honestly know. That's probably for someone else to delve into. I just... Uh, have you learned that you're uh, more selfish than you thought you might have been, or that you're yeah, that's a good, happier to probably that's true. You're a sharer, or you're uh, no, I mean because it it it, ta- it takes time and money and and uh, intellectual energy or whatever to be involved, and these aren't things that I. It's not like my spouse or my kids shared that during the time. So yeah, that, that was probably it. Would be fair to say that in cold hard terms. That was time and energy taken away from uh, my family. But also, you're a happier person as a result. Exactly. You get there, and if you're a happier person, then things are going to be better anyway. So uh, I think that you have to have that outside outlet. I, um, 
you have to have a, a connection that satisfies you. Otherwise, you're probably not going to be the greatest husband and father. But anyways, you know, yeah, uh, it would be uh, not a good situation. But is it, it's given you some sort of meaning to your life. Like what? Definitely. What, and yeah. what is that? Oh. Well, specifically with Kerouac, I, I, it comes from what I learned from Kerouac. Uh, Kerouac taught me to find your own spirituality, find your own center. And what believe is that? In, believe in yourself. That you may not, in fact, find out that you were right ever in your lifetime, but you keep going forward. Um, somebody might, a generation from now, say, yeah, they maybe had that right, you know, just as they discovered Kerouac and... So belief in yourself? Yeah, belief in yourself and that it, you're, there's a self. You're, it's egocentric. It's, it's like your reference point is yourself. And, uh, but also the darker side, too. Kerouac is also in touch with the darker side and the constant uh, awareness of death and the, the transient nature of life and so on. And death wish, almost, with the drinking, I'd say. Yeah, I don't know. I, I go... With alcohol, I think uh, in Kerouac's case, I think uh, there was a there probably is a genetic component yeah. with that. So for you, it was you had learned from him to believe in yourself, mm -hmm. in the importance of what you're doing. Yeah, if you think it is important and if you think it's worthwhile, you have to feel that. And once you lose that or doubt that, and you need to really find see. something else. Yeah, move on, move on to something else. Also, the discipline, like Kerouac was an amazingly prolific and disciplined writer. He's not given credit for that much, uh, I don't think, but he, he should be. The volume of work he did. So how did that translate into your life? The discipline that, that he showed, this idea that you believe in yourself. Can you give us an example of how that has translated into what you've done so far with your life? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well... Let's. I mean, right now, the more recent things I've been doing having to do with photographs and history, city of Ottawa, and just, a couple of years ago, I was. I've been working on an album for the longest time, um, uh, a particular family album. They lived in Ottawa. I've been piecing together bits and pieces, and I kind of go back to it every five years because sometimes new stuff, new materials available to you, or you suddenly have a better insight into how to approach a problem or whatever. Yeah. And in this particular case. Uh, I think what happened was a city, a city directory was available that hadn't been previously. And I, I had another address. I'd had multiple addresses, but here was another address, one I didn't know about. And uh, because there, I had this fantastic photograph of the young couple, and, and they're in a, one of these glee kind of duplexes. Uh, and he's on the top level, and she's on the bottom level. That was obviously their house. Uh, and I... Uh, but I had never found it. And it had a very distinctive brickwork and all this stuff. It drove me nuts. You hadn't but found the actual yeah, house. Yeah, I kept thinking, I got, I'll just keep going because I'm going to find this one day. And sure enough, one day, I'm looking at, online at something, and boy, did I, I'm not even sure what year it was, but let's say all of a sudden, 1917 City Directory is, is, is available to me. And I start flipping through it, just wipe for some habit, and there's a new address. And I jump in the car, and I head down, and after all these years, there's the house. Absolutely perfect. I could reconstruct the, the photograph. And I have this in my hand, and I'm driving by, and I'm stunned. And i got to talk to somebody, right? 
so there's a woman loading her car. She doesn't live in the house. She lives in the house next door. And I said, do you know your neighbors? And she said, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're not here right now. They're off somewhere. And uh, I said, I showed her the picture. And I said, um, that's their house in 1917 or whatever it was. And, uh, and uh, it's part of a thing I've been researching, this, this photograph, family photograph album. And, and she was sort of interested. But then in the end, she said, well, so what? <laughs> and I, she doesn't get it. Yeah, she didn't get it. And it was like, part of me was sort of saying, well, are you, you're missing what's really cool here, which is, you know, the, the, uh, this is living Ottawa history. It's, yeah. And uh, it, it doesn't make a difference, a whit of difference, who lived in this house. But, but it's really, really interesting who lived in this house and what the history of this house is. And, uh, uh, and I had... You were saying about confidence. You have confidence in yourself. Well, I know that that photograph album and that history that I now, it's much more fleshed out now, uh, is a fantastic piece of work. And when I go or whatever, uh, when somebody sits down with it, you know, 20, two decades from now, they'll first of all, they'll be amazed by the amount of work that went into it and, and what was discovered. And they'll... Like what, though? The people, all the people... All the people... All the, like I'm starting out with a photograph album that has no words in it. Right. So you, so you that you've got a you've got a kind of a thin edge of the wedge. You start off with, with a a book, let's say, right. or like a photograph, mm -hmm. and who you are is, I'm gonna understand that as completely as I can. As I possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not gonna let go of that. I'm gonna I am gonna get to as deep an understanding of that in as my I lifetime. Can. In my lifetime. Because you just know, I, know, I, know, I know from from just the, say the last 15 years right. that I'm living at the cusp of just fantastic technological developments and this kind of stuff. And uh, well, in, in other words, born too soon, you know. Uh, if, I was, if I'm doing this 20 years from now, there'll be so much more available, you know. It'll be so simple to... Like now there's limited spotty access to newspapers for example that will be all sorted out you know and so what it is it's getting to closing here it's it's getting to understand who people are and where they come from yeah. getting a full picture as full as you can get just a, a note of doubt obviously sometimes i wonder if I'm avoiding other issues, bigger issues, by squirreling away at the minutiae. Bigger issues Except in your own head. life? You mean your personal? No, not necessarily my own life, but just in, in, in a... Where does this fit in with the history of Ottawa? What was, what was happening uh, on, on a day-to-day -day basis on that street? Who was the mayor, uh, etc.? Right. I'm focusing on one family as a case study, but it's not something... You can write it all down, but it's not something that is accessible to a, a general reader. I'm not giving it real big context. No. If I, another type of person, well, we've mentioned Charlotte Gray. Charlotte Gray would take that data and turn it into a much more... A bigger narrative. Yeah, a bigger narrative with better context, you know. So the people so who are most that. interested would be the family itself, of course. Of course, You're, you're yeah. sort of doing other people's of genealogy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have lots of fun with that where I, having identified photographs, yeah. I can then go to the person online, let's say at Ancestry. I enjoy that. That's a hobby. It's, uh, and it's, a, it's akin to what I was doing with Kerouac as well. Right. So it continues. It's just that I've moved on uh, to other things. This is a favorite excerpt from Satori in Paris. Kerouac goes to Paris to research his family tree. It's a catastrophe. 
and was doomed to be a catastrophe. Um, that's a good example of Kerouac research. Kerouac knew who his ancestor was, the first uh, ancestor in, in New France. Uh, that was no problem, and he could trace himself back to that person. Yeah. But as often happened in those days, the person in Canada had changed his name. So if you were trying to trace him back in France, he had a completely different name and identity. And so Kerouac is looking for that person in France and his you know, parents and grandparents, but that person doesn't exist in France. He only acquired that identity when he got to Canada. It's it was impossible. impossible search, absolutely impossible search. However, it has been done now. Some years ago, uh, some obviously a genius genealogist got to work and using the shipping records and documents in Quebec when he was here. On a couple of occasions, he signed, like a, a christening or something, where he was a witness, he signed his name with a little bit of his original name in it, and they were able to connect him to somebody who was on a ship. And so at least the guy, they now know the guy was from Brittany, where, where Jack thought he was from, but he, he had a completely different name over there. And uh, whatever the issue why he left, you know, probably the usual story, Cherche la Femme, as they say. And, uh, and uh, anyway, so Kerouac, that trip was doomed, but it was also doomed because Kerouac was drinking way too heavily and just was stumbling around, basically. But he had been to, he had spent some time in a library where he wasn't treated that well, but you can't really... Where? In Paris. Searching for family records. For, yeah, trying to find books, particular books that he felt would be helpful and so on. And uh, he'd been kind of put off because they, he looked like a drunken bum to them, you know, and they didn't treat him that well. Yeah. But he also was put off by the whole weightiness of European history. So he writes here... Uh, the weightiness of the European history or the attitude of those who are safeguarding it? Yeah, a little bit of both, and that he wasn't going to be able to accomplish his goal, essentially. But So he then has an insight into his own situation, and he says, he writes here, the whole library, that's the one he's been visiting, groaned with the accumulated debris of centuries of recorded folly, as though you had to record folly in the old or the new world anyhow. Like my closet, now he's referring to his closet back home, uh, like my closet with its incredible debris of cluttered old letters by the thousands, books, dust, magazines, childhood box scores, the likes of which when I woke up the other night from a pure sleep made me groan to think that this is what I'm doing with my waking hours, burdening myself with junk, neither I nor anybody else should really want or will ever remember in heaven. And that's his little capsule description of what became his archive, which people look fought who over. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's invaluable, but to him, just occasionally he'd have an insight lying on his bed, looking over at his cupboard and saying, oh my God, what is all that crap? Why did I say that? Why? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's become a burden to some degree. And uh, I like that uh, quotation because it, it's kind of a Buddhist insight in terms of it's not really important. It has no importance. And, uh, Jack had his own approach to Buddhism. He took what he wanted from it. Tried to mash it together with Catholicism. He tried different things, but he, uh, he was sincerely interested in it. And I think it, for a period of time in the 50s, mid-50s, and that generated books, which are my favorites, Mexico City Blues and Visions of Gerard and uh, come directly from that period of time when he was really... Searching. 55. When he's really searching, and he's, he's practicing Buddhist. He was trying to practice mm. in the, his limited knowledge way, but he was seriously studying texts, trying to bring, trying to involve his friends and family in the whole adventure. 
You mentioned uh, burden and ashes in the mouth. Mm -hmm. If those two Im images or thoughts or our conversation is culminating in that, what have you gotten out of all your efforts? Okay, here we are. He's talking about the introduction to Satori in Paris. Um, the only thing to do is to start at the beginning. He's trying to find a way of explaining the Satori and what, where it actually lay. And the only thing to do is to start at the beginning, and maybe I'll find out right at the pivot of the story and go rejoicing to the end of it. The tale that's told for no other reason but companionship, which is another and my favorite definition of literature. So that's... I'm equating myself with that, you know, kind of... Yeah. The journey it's the journey that's undertaken for companionship, and uh, which is another and well maybe my favorite definition: living a life. You know. Thanks so much for your time. Oh no problem, that was fun. I've been speaking with uh, Rod Anstey, who continues to search for companionship.